Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Have you seen the video of President Obama calling Donald Trump a total and complete dipshit? It's right there on YouTube. But it doesn't sound like something Obama would say in a public address. And that's because it isn't. The video is a deep fake, an AI-generated video. It's one of a growing number of deep fakes that have emerged over the last several years. And I wanted to dig into these and talk about what they are, how they're created, how they're being used in politics, what they mean for the information landscape as it's changing, what they mean for information warfare. So I'm excited to speak today with Nina Schick. Nina is an independent political consultant who has worked on some of the biggest political events of the last decade, including Brexit, the EU's migrant crisis, Emmanuel Macron's 2017 presidential campaign, election interference, including the 2016 and 2020 elections in the U.S., She's advised a group of global leaders, including Joe Biden, on AI-generated synthetic media, also known as deepfakes. She's a contributor to broadcasters, including Bloomberg, Sky, CNN, and the BBC. And she is the author of Deepfakes, The Coming Infocalypse. Nina, for a lot of reasons, which we'll probably get into, I've been looking forward to this conversation since I listened to the talk you had with Sam Harris. So thank you for making the time. And welcome to Politicology. Thank you for having me, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we start at the beginning? Your career has been in politics. Why don't you give our listeners a, a brief summary of, of that portion of your life? And then what made you decide to focus in on misinformation? Absolutely. So I'm actually half Nepalese and half German, and I, and I grew up in South Asia. So when I kind of camped to Europe later on in my life to start my university career, I was always very interested in geopolitics and politics, particularly because I found Western liberal democracies to be so um, inspiring, given that I had grown up in a part of the world where, you know, uh, the kind of democratic freedoms that, well, we don't take for granted, but certainly we enjoy in the West was not something that was available. So I was always very interested in working in politics and I was like always fascinated by geopolitics. And since then, I mean, I landed in London and I started my career here, really working then on what was an obscure issue of uh, UK-EU relations. Now that all came to a head very soon afterwards in, in Brexit. And also because I was working on EU member states kind of 
responses to what was happening in the geopolitical arena, one of the really big things that really catapulted my career was kind of Russian aggression, the Russian invasion of Eastern Ukraine all the way back in 2013, 2014, how technology was being used by the Russians to kind of fight in the information ecosystem. All of this stuff that we take for granted now, given that we know what happened in the 2016 US election, what happened with regards to interference in other European countries, you know, at the time was all still emerging. And I think the big trend that I've seen throughout my geopolitical and political career over the last decade is how quickly politics and geopolitics and specifically the information ecosystem is being redrawn uh, by the changes in exponential tech uh, technology. Now, we saw that early on with smartphones and social media. And now increasingly, I think we're going to enter like the next iteration in the change of the information ecosystem through something known as synthetic media or deepfakes. So um, that's a short <laughs> history <laughs> of me and how I ended up where I am and how I ended up writing on working on deepfakes and synthetic media. So that's your primary focus now. Why don't we dive into deepfakes, uh, which are, it's still a relatively new term, I think, for many people. Can you explain what they are and how they came about? Absolutely. So a deepfake is essentially a piece of synthetic or fake media, which is either made entirely by artificial intelligence or manipulated by artificial intelligence. And this really incredible ability, right, of AI to actually create fake content is something that's only been within the realm of the possible for about the last five years. Um, and that's thanks to all the advances in kind of AI and deep learning that's taking um, artificial intelligence from something that used to be science fiction and making it into practical reality. So what you need to know is that AI is now getting sophisticated enough to make fake videos, to make fake audio, fake images, and also generate synthetic text. And the reason why this is so important is that what AI is really good at is synthesizing or faking people. Now that can be synthetic personas, i.e. generating videos and photos of people who don't exist, or being able to generate fake media, photos, videos, audio of real people, i.e. being able to clone their biometrics by using uh, authentic digital media as training data. Now, we're at the cusp of an like AI-led paradigm change in terms of synthetic content, uh, in, in terms of digital content increasingly being made by artificial intelligence. But we also have to understand that everybody now runs the risk of being cloned or synthesized by artificial intelligence. Yeah. And that really creeps me out every time, every time I think about it to see what robots can do. At some point, we should probably clarify the difference. Why don't we do that right now between mm -hmm. artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence, AI and AGI? And, um, and maybe you can just separate those for our listeners because this is not a robot making decisions for itself about what to do, but rather it's humans giving an objective to artificial intelligence. Yes. So I suppose you could def define AGI as uh, the end point where machines get sophisticated enough that they're sentient and can, can make decisions for themselves just like a human would be able to. But in terms of synthetic media, we're still talking about a machine, a very sophisticated piece of machine made 
code which is still directed by humans. So you, this is not computers going off and making fake media of people at whim. This is a clever tool which can be synthesized uh, or, or machines making synthetic um, media as directed by humans. Okay. So we're not there yet. No. Could get there eventually. We don't know. Yeah, this Sounds is like we're going to get there eventually. Right? For any debate about AI, is this, is this the point <laughs> right. where the machines are creating? No, no, no. This is not AI made kind of fake media. This is just the fact that AI can be used as a tool by humans to make fake media. Right. Okay. Uh, you also use the term infocalypse to describe our information ecosystem, which is an amalgam of information apocalypse, right? Can you explain what you mean by that? So the premise of my book is that the information ecosystem itself is constantly evolving and that over the past decade, given the advances in technology and the fact that we haven't had any safeguards in the information ecosystem itself, it's becoming an increasingly dangerous and corroded ecosystem. Now, this is the infocalypse, the state of the information ecosystem, which is evolving and becoming more and more dangerous. And the idea that if we don't take a hold and control some of the architecture around our information ecosystem, um, it's going to have effects on not only every individual, every enterprise, but society writ large, because this is an ecosystem that each of us exists in. It supersedes everything else. So this is why the health, I suppose, of the information ecosystem and the infocalypse is so important to every one of us in every aspect of our lives. Yeah. And becoming even more so by the day. So. I think most people, when they think about computer-generated images, right, they're thinking about Hollywood. They're thinking about uh, the, the James Cameron movie Avatar or The Irishman or uh, an action scene in a superhero movie, right? There's this assumption that it takes a lot of people, a big budget, a lot of time, uh, highly specialized software. But deepfakes have moved on. The technology has moved on from, from that. How have advances in AI and in technology in general made deepfakes more accessible to lay users? And you mentioned this is just something that's been, a, been possible within the last five years. Can you talk a little bit about the acceleration of the advancement as well? Absolutely. So when you think about media manipulation, I mean, I, guess, I suppose that's a good place to start because... Um, it actually precedes digital media, right? If you look at Joseph Stalin, for instance, as he, the, the Soviet dictator, in his great kind of purges of the 1930s, as he had his enemies eliminated one by one, they were simultaneously unpersoned or removed from the historical record by being edited out of photographs. Now, that was a very difficult manual process in the mid-20th century, um, but it was one that was so popular under Stalinism that an entire cottage industry fl flourished dedicated to removing people from the historical record. Now, since then, what's happened is that modern technology has constantly made media manipulation easier, uh, more accessible and scalable. So indeed, as the Soviet Union was collapsing in 1990, you had the first, uh, um, you had the appearance of Photoshop, the first kind of widespread photo editing software. Then you've had Instagram video filters. We have smartphone photo editing apps. But what is so different now with synthetic media and AI is that all forms of media, which traditionally would have been very difficult to manipulate. So you mentioned Hollywood studios, you mentioned Avatar. Um, it, it, you would have needed a team of special effects artists. You would need a multi-million dollar budget. 
But AI is going to make that much simpler. It'll make it much cheaper. It's going to make it scalable. And this kind of technology is going to be wrapped up in easy to use interfaces like smartphone apps, meaning that you need to have no resources. You need to have no extra skills. You don't need to have anything apart from a smartphone to be able to achieve the same kind of visual effects that would have only been accessible to a Hollywood studio even five years ago. And there's a great example of this. Um, I, I talk about it in my book, and that is the film The Irishman, which came out in um, 2019 or 2020. It was Martin Scorsese's film. as another big kind of gangster epic mob film. And in The Irishman, Martin Scorsese, never wanted to back down from a challenge, decided he wanted to tell the story of his protagonist spanning over seven decades. So in order to do so, he wanted to de-age the gang, you know, Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, et al. And to do that, in this project started in 2015. They needed to film with a very complicated three-camera rig system. They had the best special effects artists in Hollywood working on the project. And it took them years, cost them how much money, I don't know. Later, Scorsese complained that it was hell because of the way they had to film. And when it came out in 2020, which was at the same time where this kind of deep fake technology was starting to emerge via the open source community on the internet, a deep fake artist on YouTube took open source tools, which were emerging from the AI research community, and he decided to have a go at de-aging the protagonist. So he took an edit of Scorsese's film. And if you saw Scorsese's film, you might have seen Okay, how, was the de-aging effective? You look at it, you're like, yeah, it's okay, but it's not entirely convincing. Then you take the guy on YouTube who took the free software, had uh, a budget of zero, no special effects artists, and he tried to use AI to achieve the same effect. You can go look on YouTube and look at the side-by-side -side comparison of Scorsese's original Irishman versus the edit by the YouTuber. And without a doubt, the YouTuber's edit is far more compelling. So even though the barriers to entry are still higher than commonly reported, because deepfakes are um, a very kind of compelling, sexy, and scary topic, the barriers to entry in order to create a really convincing deepfake are not you know, just accessible to anyone just yet. The technology is accelerating so quickly that by 2030, I'm convinced we're going to be at the stage where a single creator, right, a YouTuber or a TikToker, is going to be able to create the same level of multimedia or visual effects, or even better than what a Hollywood studio can do today with teams of special effects artists and multi-million dollar budgets. So AI is democratizing and making accessible the most sophisticated visual effects and media manipulations to anybody. And because of the way that, you know, compute is moving and um, this means that this is going to be accessible via things like smartphone apps. This raises, I think, the question of deep fake detection mm -hmm. and the technology that one would hope is advancing at the same rate, that's accelerating at the same rate, the ability of the same types of AI to detect whether or not the video is authentic. So can we spend a little bit of time talking about 
uh, authentication and and what the state of that technology is, because I can already hear people, you know, this is getting really scary, right? Uh, you, your imagination begins to run wild with all the ways that this is definitely going to go bad, right? And the key to stopping all of the negative effects, all of the malicious acts that are going to be done with deepfakes is, is accurate and quick detection. So what is the state of technology on that front? Is it advancing or is it playing catch up? Um, and what, what can we know about that? Just to take a step back in terms of like how this could all go bad, uh, just to really highlight that this is a potential risk to everyone. First of all, every individual and every enterprise, because it means that with limited training data and who doesn't have some form of digital footprint online, right? Whether it's on social media, whether you've been filmed at a work event, whether you've left a voicemail on someone's phone, that can now be weaponized against you. So that can be used to get AI to learn to synthesize you in a video or in a fake audio. And already that technology is accelerating so quickly that in order to synthesize somebody's voice, um, you know, there are companies out there that claim that all they need is five seconds of audio. So for someone like you, Ron, or me, okay, there's lots of public recordings of us out there would be prime targets. But even somebody who doesn't have that much, if you're even five seconds is enough. So that's that's like the the personal and business risk in the sense that anybody can be synthesized. So you can imagine how for cyber criminals, for instance, if you want to do a spear phishing or if you want to pose as someone, okay, it's a great boon. But there's something even more profound. And that is that you we already live in an age of dis and misinformation, as we all know from um, recent political events, but also lockdown. And the mere concept that now all media can be faked, right? Including video, which we've tended to see as an extension of our own perception, which is why video evidence is so compelling in a court of law, leads to the idea that, well, then even if video can be faked, then nothing is real anymore. And that gives bad actors more Um, room to claim that everything authentic is not real. It's fake. So this is something known as a liar's dividend. So you're you're facing a very profound change in the information ecosystem itself as you increasingly enter the age of AI, deepfakes, and synthetic media, where if nothing is done, the potential ramification is that nobody will be able to trust any content anymore because everything can be faked and everything can be dismissed as fake. And without any trust, visual trust, you can't trust your own senses. You you don't know if you see or hear, you cannot tell if it's authentic or synthetic, well then the fabric of society will break down. So you have to take a very holistic approach when you think about solutions and how you're gonna safeguard the information ecosystem itself because synthetic content or deep fake content is gonna become ubiquitous, I think by the end of the decade. And there's two ways you can think about it, at least from a tech-led perspective. The first is detection. And that is the idea that, you know, there is going to be so much of this stuff out there. It's going to be so good that to the naked human eye or even to a very sophisticated digital kind of forensic investigator, it is not going to be apparent what is synthetic, i.e. a deep fake or, or what's real. So the idea is to get AI to fight AI. So you build an AI detection model, which is tra- an, an ensemble model, which is um, trained to detect all the fakes because there'll be something in the DNA of the fake that the AI can pick up on that humans will not be able to see or detect anymore. The problem <laughs> with detection, however, is that 
it's going to be like, it's an adversarial game. So as soon as you build a detector that can detect a fake, the fakes will be able to figure out how to beat the detector. So it's this evolving cat and mouse game. And even the entire kind of AI research community is um, the jury still out as to whether there comes a point where the generation, so like the ability of AI to make or generate the synthetic content becomes so sophisticated that even the <laughs> no detection model will be able to pick it up. So we don't know yet. You asked about where where is the community in with vis-a-vis -vis these efforts. Um, this is all still such a new field. And I think because there are so many excite, aside from the dangerous applications of deepfakes and synthetic media, because it, there are also many legitimate commercial entertainment purposes, the whole AI research community has focused a lot on the generative side. Now, increasingly, you're starting to see initiatives on the detection side, including by DARPA, the, you know, the US military special um, program on technology. So I'd say in the United States, there's certainly been a lot of concerted effort, including from a national pers security perspective, to build detectors. Again, as I mentioned, very problematic uh, because you never know if a detector will be able to detect, uh, will be outstripped by the generator. And moreover, if you, there are companies, including Microsoft, for instance, who have built detection models for deepfakes. But, and then they say, you know, they're like 90% effective. But that is only 90% effective on the data that they've used in their, in their study. We still don't know, and I, I, I would think that it's not going to be the case, where you can deploy a detection model in the wild, so to speak, where it can actually pick up 90% of synthetic content. Because there are so many different ways to make deep fakes that one size does not fit all, and one detector will not catch everything. That being said, I know I've been a bit down on detection here. Um, it's still an important field to develop because it's just like any form of cybersecurity or you want to build layers of resilience. So you have to have different types of detection models that you deploy um, that will be just another shield or another guard in terms of making sure that you can pick up maliciously deployed synthetic content. However, the more long-term um, solution in my view, at least when you're looking at the technology to kind of counter this erosion of the information ecosystem, the infocalypse, is this idea known as media provenance um, and authentication. And that essentially boils down to two ideas. The first is that instead of trying to detect everything that's fake, that's going to be a fool's errand, right? Because there's going to be so much of it out there. Moreover, a lot of synthetic content won't be malicious. A lot of it will be for corporate communication, entertainment, or just people making silly memes. So if you detect billions of pieces of um, you know, benign synthetic content, it's not going to be a useful distinction. So rather than trying to detect everything that's fake, you want to authenticate what's real. And the way that you do that, and um, in fact, I advise um, a brilliant startup called Trupic, uh, is that you can already integrate into, whether it's the camera of a, uh, into, a, into a smartphone camera or um, a video camera, um, this technology which allows you to secure capture. So that piece of media will always have uh, data attached to it that shows who took it, wh where it was created, the date, the location, you always have a stamp and seal of authentication. And then further to that, you take it further, the, the idea of media provenance then is to have 
attached to each piece of media, whether it's synthetic, so created or generated by AI or authentic, um, a chain of provenance showing who created it, how it's been edited. The idea really is to authenticate uh, at authenticate real media at capture, and then also be able to show how each piece of media, other media, whether it's authentic or synthetic, has been um, how it's evolved across its lifetime. So it's really a policy of full transparency. And of course, not everybody is going to adopt this authentication or provenance approach. But the idea is that you get for all legitimate actors, whether they're government agencies or businesses, you want to create an ecosystem where the media you interact with on a daily basis, you're not making it, you're not saying this is false or this is true, but there's additional contextual information so that you, the consumer, can make an informed decision about what you're interacting with. It seems to me that cryptography might have a role to play in this authentication uh, development. Is that is that accurate? And and is it already being used? Is that how it already um, is? And and the yeah. really, I mean, I suppose the really good news is that this this entire community around media authentication and provenance is really been growing. They there are there's already an alliance called the C2PA, which is building an open standard for media provenance standards. And that's all really taking place, I would say, in the United States. And it's it's coming to the fore over the last two years. So from when I wrote my book to now 2022, um, it's, it's really come a long way. But for me, I think when you think about how dramatically the information ecosystem is going to change, I think that the, the age of synthetic media is just as big a leap in the future of human communication, of human society, of human commerce as the invention of the internet itself, you have to take a proactive approach. And thus far, and in part, I suppose that's to do with the kind of utopian ideals of the founders of the internet, there have been no safety mechanisms inbuilt into the information ecosystem. Now, given that we all exist in that ecosystem now, nothing, you can't do anything without kind of having a presence in that ecosystem. We really have to fundamentally rethink how do we inbuild mechanisms for safety within the architecture of that ecosystem. I think that media authentication and media provenance will be key given that, um, here's a great stat for you, um, some experts who I've worked with, and I believe they're credible, and I believe the stat is credible, believe that by 2030, so by the end of the decade, up to 90% of video content online will be synthetic. Wow. So it's coming quickly. <laughs> and we have wow. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And um, um, some, some other experts disagree because they think we're going to hit that by 2025. Wow. So we're just about there. And then I also imagine this is something most people I think don't realize, but the porn industry is actually like 60, 70% of the internet. And I have to imagine they're going to be the first and fastest adopters of this technology. I mean, maybe they probably already are, but, um, you know, there's a whole story behind that. So that brings me to rule number 34, one of the memes of the internet, which basically states, well, first of all, porn is pioneering when it comes to anything related to the internet. And rule number 34, this meme of the internet states that if something exists, then it exists online in the form of pornography and there's no acceptance. 
This is certainly true wow. for deep fakes. And as a matter of fact, they first emerged in at the end of 2017 in the form of non-consensual pornography um, when the, these AI tools, which were emerging out of the AI research community, right, which allowed AI to generate these um, fake videos, were basically used to make non-consensual pornography. And now a few years down the line, there's an entire deep fake pornography ecosystem online, and it's a serious problem. It's an unbelievable, unbelievably gendered problem. So 99.9% of victims of this kind of intimate image abuse really are women. And um, if you've read any headlines about it, you might think, okay, it's only female celebrities who are targeted in these deepfake porn creations, but it's not. It's increasingly more and more ordinary women. So, you know, your wife, your colleagues, your sister, your mother, because all that's needed is some authentic media, which can easily be scraped off somebody's LinkedIn, social media, again, who doesn't have some kind of digital footprint online. And really alarmingly, it's now being even used to target minors. So oh, wow. what appears to be this tawdry women's issue, right, in, in pornography is actually much bigger than that. It's, it's a civil liberties issue about who has the right to, oh, well, to, to take your likeness, your image, the sanctity of your voice, your appearance, and, well, who, not who has the right, it's that, that, that can be done without your consent. And but who has the tools? Exactly. Right. And, uh, yeah. And these tools are, again, um, freely accessible, open, and will become even more sophisticated and um, available via things like apps. I mean, it takes the idea of the, you know, the phenomenon of revenge porn to a, to a completely different level. Um, so, so while we're talking about some of these specific examples of, of nefarious things that this is being used for already, um, I imagine identity theft is a big one, especially when you have banks, you know, now relying on voice print recognition. Yeah, yeah biometrics and voice print recognition. I mean, I sometimes I call my bank and they already know who I am because of my voice. I don't have to say anything. And if you can fake a phone number, um, so I have to also imagine that there are commercial efforts aimed at detection, specifically for that reason, for financial and and other data privacy reasons. But, um. Uh, you know, I was going to wait until later to talk about privacy with you, um, but maybe we should talk about that now because it feels like that's uh, that that's that's the looming question here, which is in in a world where all kinds of boundaries are coming down, not just borders between states, but borders between information. Right in the digital space. Borders are kind of a an inherited analog that we've tried to replicate, right? But they don't actually belong. They are not native to 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 a digital world. So, how do you think about you know? There's this there's this sort of um, uh, culty expression from Silicon Valley that information wants to be free, right? Data wants to be free. Um, how this is really open ended, but how do you think about the 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 value of privacy, the function of privacy in the world that we're now describing that we're entering? Well, it's going to become something that is a currency that is ever more valuable and certainly not something that you can take for granted, right? Because even a few years ago or even a decade ago, you could have argued, oh, well, if you know this, this 
ecosystem is too dangerous for you. You want to remain a private person. Just don't engage. Well, that's just simply not possible anymore, right? Everybody needs to be online somehow, whether it's for work, for personal reasons, for communication. So the fact that that means that you are insecure to the extent where your own biometrics can be cloned is a serious problem. Now, the thing that I'm sure you'll agree with as somebody who has like a political background is that the pace of change in technology and with particular regard to the information ecosystem itself is so rapid, is so exponential that in order to play catch up, you know, you, you mentioned revenge porn, for instance, people are still trying to figure out legislation around revenge porn. I was working on something related to that in the UK and they still don't even know what to do with people sharing authentic videos online, let alone when AI created deep fake videos of somebody in a porn video, which they never even filmed, is now possible. So we're always behind anyway when it comes to kind of societal or policy remedies. And that that has been magnified even more now, given the kind of exponential rate of change when it comes to technology. So this, I think, is a huge problem. And a reason why um, I'm part of this community to do with media provenance and authentication, because even though there isn't widespread adoption of this yet in terms of this being, um, you know, something that governments prescribe or as a policy recommendation, you have to think about the enormity of the paradigm change away. We have to think a few steps ahead in terms of, okay, Rather than being reactive, how can we actually be proactive? How do we actually fix the structure of the information ecosystem itself? So, you know, how do we turn back the infocalypse? Um, so, yeah, to to I went on a bit of a tangent then, but no, no, this is this is this is. I mean, it's a bit, it's a it's a big, wide ranging question with so many tendrils attached to it. But it seems um, it seems obvious to me, and uh, as someone who has worked in politics their entire life up until just, I mean, now I'm doing this, right. But, um, that the government is always only ever going to be playing catch up with technology ever. Like that's, that's just accept it and move on. If we can't even figure out, uh, a solution to privacy when it comes to revenge porn, we're never going to catch up to the advances in AI that are, that are facilitating malice that we can't even imagine yet. Right. That we, that we really can't. So I have to assume that the solution to this privacy challenge is going to be technology-based and it's not going to come from government. Government is not actually equipped to safeguard us from the negative, the byproducts, the negative byproducts of advancements in technology, which aren't going to stop. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.